where four academics of color sit around in coffee shops and discuss great books. Each episode will feature a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops, which is where we are right now. So I'm Anita Chikatora, the host for the show, and I teach in the Educational Studies Department at Carleton College. I'm Adriana Estel, and I teach in American Studies and English at Carleton College. I'm Crystal Moten. I teach African American history at McAllister College. I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach African American literature, culture, cultural studies, and folklore in the English department at University of St. Thomas. Woo! So in this episode, we're going to discuss Audre Lorde's book, Zami, A New Spelling of My Name. Audre Lorde was a New Yorker, woohoo! A, da- <laughs> a daughter of immigrants, woohoo! Me too. A womanist, a poet, a writer, a theorist, and a social justice activist. For those of us who do any work on race, gender, sexuality, power, and privilege, Audre Lorde is a must-read. Um, and before we dig in, as always, just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. In other words, we're all about spoilers and not about summaries. <laughs> um, so let's go, because there is a ton that I want to talk about with you all about this book. Um, so I guess I want to start with, you know, Zami was first published in 1982. And I first encountered this book, and I think Audre Lorde for the first time, during my first semester at college um, in 1996. And a couple of years ago, I found these journals that I would kept when I was a college student, and this is what I'd written about reading Zami for the first time. I'm reading a book by Audre Lorde, a black lesbian activist. She sounds so cool. <laughs> <laughs> she had so many obstacles and hardships, but she loved and was loved. Clearly, eight-year-old Anita was very cheesy. Uh, <laughs> uh, but because, you know, Audre Lorde is such an influential figure, I was actually wondering if we could start by talking about the, maybe the first time we read Zami and then maybe get into, you know, how it felt kind of going back to it. So this is like 35 years, right, after it was published and, you know, for me about 20 years after um, when I first read it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Who wants to start us off about maybe what you remember about the first time you read it? Maybe I can start because, honestly, like, I... I did read it in college, but I don't remember any of it. Mm. And I wonder, like, I th- this may be just because of my bad memory, which is <laughs> tr- a true thing. It's true. Um, but I wonder also, as you were talking, Anita, I wondered if it's because I read Sister Outsider at about mm. the same time. And for some reason, that became a much more steady kind of uh, text in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Poetry is not a luxury, especially, and so I was all about poetry in college. Mm -hmm. I was all about figuring out how to defend um, what meaning making and word making, why that existed and should exist in the world and should be respected. Um, and especially in marginalized communities and Chicana studies. And so I think that was the book that I just glommed onto. And even though this uh, um, biomythography is intense and really beautiful, like I feel like I've ju- I just put it away as kind of like Lord's life, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to like really remembering all of the details that now I feel like I can see more clearly. Mm-hmm. I had I have a similar experience with the book. Um, I can't. I know I read it before, but I don't know exactly what it was. 
Um, it was probably when I was in graduate school because one of the chapters of my dissertation is on Audre Lorde. Um, so I'm pretty sure I read it around that time. But I, I was like you in that um, I was way more taken and interested in the poetry and in um, Sister Outsider as a way to approach the poetry too, right? Like so I felt the politics I think more explicitly in those essays. But now going back and reading it again, now I, I see the politics so mm -hmm. much more clearly. And you know, you can you if you ask if you ask my partner, like uh, every time I was reading, you know, this book, you know, during the last couple of weeks, I would be like, "What? Holy shit! You know, what? Oh my god!" I mean, I would, there's just exclamations all over the place because either things that she was saying that I was thinking, "Wow, that is so ahead of its time," or mm. things that she was was saying that are so it's such a clear articulation of something that we all kind of take for granted now mm -hmm, yeah. or um a really i mean like i just thought this book is like pretty much a biography of somebody's life before they're like 25 yeah right and if i wrote something like that that would be horrible i mean no one <laughs> would want to read it and if they did they'd want to kill me like they'd want well, to the be only side to side find interesting is your love for indigo girls oh. so that would be <laughs> i'm outed i'm outed yeah everybody knew that but yeah so i think like going back and reading it again has been a really wonderful experience mm. i've really loved it I first encountered the book actually in graduate school as well, and it was in the context of a black woman's history class. And so we were reading it to think about black women's activism. Um, but what I'll say is that when I read it in graduate school, it was, it was difficult for me to enter into the text because it wasn't um, the typical kind of primary source that I was used to analyzing and um, I hadn't, I didn't know much about Audre Lorde before I encountered Zami, and so um, it was kind of my first time encountering her, and then I learned about Sister Outsider, and then I learned about her poetry, and so first encountering her through this, it was a little bit hard for me to connect with, um, but since then, I teach, um, I teach Zami a lot, and I use it to think about um, kind of tons of tons of kind of intersecting themes in um, black history, black queer history, urban studies, mm -hmm. um, autobiography and memoir, and how black women's stories are told. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So both you and Anita have taught the book, mm -hmm. and I'm really curious like what your students take from it, like what yeah. seems really luminous and yeah. right. considering especially that Todd right. and I like yeah. have these experiences of mm -hmm. I think you've yeah. taught the book too Todd no right? I haven't, oh, you haven't. I've, I've oh, never taught it before was. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you can go because I mean I actually yeah. only teach a small part of it and I can yeah. talk about that part but yeah um, I well I think the first well one of the first things that students mention is they too especially kind of hearkening back to our conversations about poetry and how sometimes poetry is difficult for students to engage with because this book even though it's um the book is so poetic, even in how she describes her experiences, right? Um, the language she uses and the words that she chooses to kind of render her stories are really kind of um, 
using my hands and our <laughs> listeners can't see my hands, um, but it's really flowery. Yeah. Um, and so one of the first things that students mentioned is kind of the language that she uses. And sometimes, and when they first started, they don't quite also know quite how to enter in. So it takes them a little while to get into the um, into the text. But once they're in the text, um, they they also kind of talk about Audre Lorde and her family's. Um, relationship to an understanding of race and racism, particularly um, uh, being um, from the Caribbean mm -hmm. and how that um, shapes their experiences of being black in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, also, they find fascinating um, uh, Audre Lorde's inability to speak for so long mm -hmm. and what finally draw, enables her to speak. So this question of language and writing. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, uh, Audre Lorde exploring her sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, Audre Lorde's relationship with her mother, with her sisters, with her father. Mm -hmm. Everything. Things that we will talk about. Everything. <laughs> it's so interesting. I mean, yeah. this is slightly different yeah. than teaching mm -hmm. it, but I was actually, right, rereading it, I was actually struck by sort of how many things that were unknown to her, right? And like so many things mm -hmm. that she was like trying out for the first time mm -hmm. and actually trying to find the words mm -hmm. yes. and trying to find the yes. language to like describe yeah. like what she was feeling and what she was doing mm -hmm. and like, and I don't know that I remember that from like mm -hmm. reading it the first time, but it, you know, and it's also like, yeah, she's young, right? But, but, <laughs> it's like, it's about her as a kid. And so it's just like how the like silences around her about some of those feelings and interactions, including that from her parents about racism, right? Mm -hmm. right made it difficult to like name things. Yes. Um, were you gonna say something? But, and I have yeah. some examples. Well, that that is, to. I think that's like super brilliant observation because it is what poets try to do, right? Mm. I mean, they're trying to find language for mm -hmm. things that we haven't yet named. Mm -hmm. And yeah. as a poet, as a de, as a sort of developing poet or a poet finding herself or a person finding herself as a poet, I think you're right. There's like all these instances where she's trying to figure out what something is and then you have this snippet of something that she wrote when she was 17 or something right, right there where she's trying to give name to it yeah. and sometimes I, I suppose that can be challenging for us as readers because we're not sure exactly what she's trying to, to name because she hasn't quite found it yet right. yeah. so you yeah. kind of there's lots of moments of um, uncertainty and ambiguity in, in the book but I think, you know, in the end, it turns out sort of to be really beautiful because yeah. you go on this journey yeah. of discovery with her yes. and you have to sort of like linger in those moments mm -hmm. where you don't know the same yeah. way she would have when she was there at the at the time experiencing it, right? Yeah, and I don't know why that didn't strike me the first time, right? Because I was like 18 and clearly I was still mm -hmm. like discovering myself, but for some reason this time it struck me much mm -hmm. more as like looking at this journey of discovery. Like I remember that maybe, well, or I didn't remember that. I sort of struck me more this time around maybe. Well, I wonder if, I mean, I don't know if this is right or not, but this is a book about teenage years and sort of, you know, young adulthood that is, I think, really accurate in a lot of ways, but is probably not written the way a young person would write it because it's right. an older person looking mm -hmm. back right. at there. Mm -hmm. right. So, I mean, part of what's really amazing about it is that she's so able to describe these things that happened and to re-enter those point. moments, yeah. but it's probably not the way that you would have thought about it when you were 18 exactly. or 19 when right. you might have been reading right. it when you're younger right my prose is like she's so cool so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. i had right. So, right. um so, so oh do you have i, I just have an example sure. yeah just have because a um the way you talked about that really reminded me of um her lack of language about sexuality and mm -hmm. in particular um wanting to love women's bodies right mm -hmm. and um you know this is not a direct journey for her. Mm -hmm. um, 
and there's this whole interaction with Ginger, right? This flirtation that um, where Ginger is constantly challenging her about her lack of language, right? Cat got your tongue, right? And you know, don't you have words now? Um, and so finally, when they do um, have sex uh, and they're in bed together, there's this amazing moment where she says. I never questioned where my knowledge of her body and her need came from. This is page 139. Um, loving Ginger that night was like coming home to a joy I was meant for. And I only wondered silently how I had not always known that it would be so. Um, and I just thought that was such a beautiful way of, like, for all of us, right, that tentative kind of movement towards something that we think we want to be able to language, mm -hmm. right? We want to be able to engage in. Um, but until you actually do, you, you can't know. Yeah. But then once you are there in it, it's all you can know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And kind mm -hmm. of related to that, but also to her mom, and this is earlier on in page 15. Um, That's a lot earlier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so she says, and this is, uh, as a child, I always knew my mother was different from the other women I knew, black or white. I used to think it was because she was my mother, but different how. I was never quite sure. There were other West Indian women around a lot in our neighborhood and church. There were also other black women, as light as she, particularly among the Low Island women. Redbone, they were called. Different how, I never knew. But that is why to this day, I believe that there was always been black dykes around and the power, and the sense of powerful and women-oriented women would have rather died than use that name for themselves. And that includes my mama. Right, so I think that was sort of interesting that it's both like this trying to name the difference, but also this like silence, right? The silence around what we can't name or what we don't want to name, right? And I think in that encounter with Ginger as well, right? Like maybe not wanting to name well, the fact that she didn't have the experience that Ginger seemed to think she had, right? Because <laughs> right? she was like the city slicker, you know? Um, so I think that was kind of interesting, but yeah. And I guess I had another one, if that's okay, about, because it related to your point about being a daughter of immigrants, right? And the, um, this is page 69, like when they go to DC, mm -hmm. and there was like, you know, they were on the train, mm -hmm. and like, you know, her mom's like, oh, we don't want to go to the dining car because it's like expensive, they don't have good food anyway. And she's like, you know, of course my mom, what she didn't mention was that black people were not allowed into railroad dining cars right. at its south in 1947. And then she says on that next page, 69, American racism was a new and crushing reality that my parents had to deal with every day of their lives once they came to this country. They handled it as a private woe. My mother and father believed that they could best protect their children from the realities of race in America and the fact of American racism by never giving them name, much less discussing their nature. We were told we must never trust white people, but why was never explained, nor the nature of their ill will. Like so many other vital pieces of information in my childhood, I was supposed to know without being told. It always seemed like a very strange injunction coming from my mother, who looked so much like one of those people we were never supposed to trust. But something always warned me not to ask my mother why she wasn't white, and why Auntie Lily and Auntie Etta weren't, even though they were all that same problematic color, so different from me, from my father and me, even from my sisters who were somewhere in between. And it's, it just, and I, it just, yeah, I just thought it was like interesting to think about that. When you were reading that, I was thinking about whether that's changed. I mean, that's a sort of generational thing there. Mm. When it comes to race, I suppose that maybe um, parents have realized they have to talk to their children about this or, or no? What do you think? I, actually, it struck me as like an immigrant thing to an me, more so oh. than like a generational thing, okay. right? That for immigrant parents, like a lot of them are coming from places where they are the majority, right? right. But like, so coming into this place where you're suddenly the minority, 
right? It's like, A, they don't actually even maybe have a framework to, like, understand that, right? A, and then B, I think there is sort of this sense of, like, the immigrants, like, we came here to, like, make a better life for you, so just, like, deal with it and just go with it, right? I mean, there's a lot of research that's done on this, like, John Ogbu talks about, right, but, like, there's kind of the voluntary minorities and the involuntary minorities, right, and, like, the immigrants are the voluntary minorities, and for them, I mean, it's not that everybody thinks this way, but sort of the general sense is that you've left somewhere because it's terrible and you're coming here, and even if it's not great, right, it's better than where you came from, therefore you work hard and you just, like, ignore these things that happen to you. Um, and there's also, like, really interesting research that's done with, like, black immigrants, right, and that there's a lot of ways in which, for example, Jamaican immigrants actually try to separate themselves out, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. from African Americans or black Americans because, right, they don't want to be sort of lumped in mm -hmm. with the sort of what they see now as, mm -hmm. right, sort of the underclass and what they see mm -hmm. as like, these folks. So I guess to me that actually struck me as, like, very much still the case, right? And I feel like even for me, and obviously my experience of racism is different than hers, but like my brother and I talked about the experiences we had, but we never talked about it with our parents, right? And our parents never talked to us really about anything that they'd experienced that hmm. they would classify, let's say, as racism. Well, I think the, the reason that's interesting, the reason I thought that was because of the similarity with the way that her mother deals with both racism and sexuality. And I just thought, like, they're both things that um, to her are mysterious and uncomfortable and potentially, like, shameful. Mm -hmm. And so she deals with it by acting like it's not a thing, by ignoring it, essentially. Mm -hmm. At least that's Audrey's perception of it, is that she's sure. just ignoring these things. When I, Probably she's dealing with it, in, as you say, in, like, a private way. Um, but, you know, we, there's so many cases when it comes to how how young people learn about sexuality often doesn't come from their parents because their parents don't want to talk to them about it because it's really uncomfortable and stuff. And so, I mean, you see Audrey's lifelong journey to sort of discover her own sexuality and be comfortable with it is really long, partially, which is really interesting because she's, she suspects her mother is also gay and, and she feels like that comes from her mother and yet her mother will never speak to her about it. And so she's very unsure about what it means for herself and her own life, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I also interesting read that as like a very immigrant thing. That also, okay. <laughs> right, that like you don't talk about these things and there's sort of this particular sort of conservatism because you want to be, you want to put your best foot, quote unquote, right, mm. best foot forward. Mm. And clearly, right, being gay is not your best foot forward in right. some, some ways, right? So would it be that. this idea that, like, we came here and now you're going to ruin it if you yeah. do something like that? I mean, I, I think we see, you know, she doesn't code it as, she as an immigration yeah. issue, but we definitely see the kind of comparison to her sisters and feeling like the, you know, mm. the the daughter in the family who's not mm -hmm. behaving in the right, right way right, right. to like be productive and, and be assimilated into American society in particular ways. Mm -hmm. um, and she comes to uh, think of that as something good eventually. Eventually. Right, but for mm -hmm. when she's young it's, but to take on that, that idea of sister outsider eventually becomes empowering. But when you're, when you're young you don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think that was part of what I was thinking about. I feel like, you know, when it first read, obviously, I don't know who she was, but I think now I, like, have this idea of, like, Audrey Lord, mm -hmm. right? Like, right. Like, yes. she's big, mm -hmm. and she's, and deservedly so, right, yeah. in terms of, like, we all, so I feel like coming back to this, she just seems so young, and so, 
unsure yeah. in ways that I don't think I think of her now, like because I feel like she's written so much and she everybody quotes her and every, like right, you know. So I don't know. Like I was just struck by like, oh wait, she also had these moments where yeah. you know. So great. Yes. Mm. Like honestly, that's what I kept on thinking yeah. about. Like, who leaves your? You know, you go to college for a semester. It doesn't work out for a lot of reasons. She's like, okay, I'm gonna go live on my own. I'm gonna like go work True. in a factory. I'm gonna make this work, and I'm gonna save up enough money. I'm gonna go to Mexico. True. True. On my own. I don't know anybody. There. And she's like 19, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. Then I'm yeah. gonna come back, and I'm gonna be a writer. Mm. You know, and I'm gonna join this cool writing workshop, and I'm like meet all <laughs> these writers. Um, so like, there, I, yeah. I just was really like, part of me was. Who is this person? And like, what is this time period and this place that made it like so possible for her to, in some ways, gather around her, mm. right? This um, set of people that uh, that were similarly ambitioned, right, mm. and who saw purpose in what they should do in order mm. to be who they like to change the world in the way they wanted to. Like, there's the whole section where she talks about the Rosenbergs, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. definitely kind of like this political um, backdrop yeah. to, like, the choices she's making and why they matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, does, uh, does, you know, growing up in New York City have something to do with it, too? I mean, yes. I was going to, I was actually going to, yes. as you were asking that question, thinking about her family coming to Harlem yeah. in... I think it was 1929. 20, 24, 20, yeah, I think. Oh, yeah, 24, yeah, 24, you're right. And so I was thinking about kind of the context of, yeah, mother and father came in 1924, the, uh, the context of being in Harlem during the Harlem mm-hmm. Renaissance and the impact that might have had not only on, well, on her parents, but then on um, kind of the, the ideas of what possibilities could happen, mm-hmm. especially in terms of activism, in terms mm-hmm. of literature and writing mm-hmm. and kind of being enmeshed in a world where that was so thriving, um, mm-hmm. I think, played a part. But I was also wondering in terms of, you know, her, dis- her at every point, the decision she made, thinking about how that was also a reflection of her being ostracized and an outsider. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so because she didn't have because so much of this book for me is about her trying to find her home, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and not only mm-hmm. the physical home, but also um, like a political home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Emotional mm-hmm. home. Yeah. 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 And so during this period in her life, she's you know, trying out all these places and people to figure out where is my home. Mm -hmm. And so in some senses, she doesn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. When something, she tries something and it doesn't work out, she has to, to keep, to keep trying um, because she's on that search. Yeah. Um, But you don't have to, right? Like you could just stay stuck and not look for that, right? So I think in some ways, both of those things, right? Like Mm -hmm. you could sort of just pretend like things are working and she chose not to, right? She chose to say like, I deserve to have a place where I feel, right? You know what I mean? Like, right. so like she's searching for this place right. to your home. And so I think right. both yeah. of those things, right? So yes, right? Like mm-hmm. she didn't have a choice in that. Yeah. She wasn't right. fully, she couldn't be fully herself at home to mm-hmm. begin with, right? Like mm-hmm. if that's when mm-hmm. she leaves. Right. But a lot of, yeah. maybe not a lot of us, but you know, a lot of us <laughs> may just True. choose yeah. to stay in these like moments and these spaces that yeah. don't fit us mm-hmm. because we're that's like true. not yeah. brave enough to leave. Right. Yeah. And to search, huh. right? So I don't know. So I, I feel like that's kind of how I thought about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating to think, I mean, 
how uh, the way that parents raise their kids can have such different effects on different children and um, I mean essentially her mother is very cautious and sort of fearful and like wants to put the reins on her all the time and of course her response is like no I'm gonna go and, and you know she's she's kind of not that honest with her about you know sort of um, everyday life kind of issues but on the other her mom, her mom yeah but on the other hand like she's super honest with her about like some of these emotional things there's like some really mm-hmm. intimate tender moments between yeah. the two of them where she's telling mm-hmm. I mean I'm just thinking of even <laughs> this is kind of like a maybe kind of a, a horrifying scene when she is at school and she w- runs for uh, class president but she doesn't oh, win yes. yeah. yeah and her mother is like yeah. slapping her but she says to her why do you think that any white people would elect you president like yeah. and I'm thinking like that's mm-hmm. a horrible moment of like physical abuse and yet it is a very, very um, important lesson about racism, right. but it's not. It's not given in a. It's sort of. It's like in a direct form, and yet not in a direct right. form, right? At the right. same time, you know. Right. Well, it's yeah. No, from the outside, and especially in 2018, I feel like we read that scene. And I'm like, you're blaming your own daughter for the racist right. kind of like interaction she's about to encounter. You're like, well, mm-hmm. because the mom's basically saying, why are you going? Why are you setting yourself, yourself in a position up? Right. 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 where you can be hurt this way mm-hmm. by the world around you? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but on the other hand, like I feel like we read that in the newspapers still, right? Like so, the Starbucks story comes out, mm-hmm. and how many people are there, you know, online saying, "Oh, well, they should have ordered something," <laughs> or "Why didn't they leave when the police asked them to leave?" Right. You don't even know the story. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's, like it's your fault, right? Yeah. How, how dare you set yourself up for racist cops right. to come exactly. and like I don't know arrest you? But I guess your um, story also made me think of that. Remember that moment where she talks about this on Seventeen, like when she was a little girl, it was like all these people like spitting on her, right? And the Mom would always be like, um, she fussed about low class people who had no better sense or manners than to spit into the wind no matter where they went, impressing upon me that this humiliation was totally random. It never occurred to me to doubt her. It was not until years later, once in conversation, I said to her, Have you noticed people don't spit in the wind so much as they used to? <laughs> and the look on my mother's face told me that I'd blundered into one of those secret places of pain that must never be spoken of again. Mm. But it was so typical of my mother when I was young that if she couldn't stop white people from spitting on her children because they were black, she would insist that it was something else. Mm. It was so often her approach to the world to change reality. Because yeah. if you can't change reality, change your perceptions of right, it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Yeah. Right. So that, I was thinking of you know what she, the proverb that she uses with... Audrey in the other situation which applies here as well which is the bird forgets but the trap never does mm. you know and I, I love that but mm. it, it is that exact thing right mm-hmm. that um, it's always going to be this way therefore you have to change your positioning to it or your perception of it right Right. Yeah. and she refuses that right, right. like she I think Audrey Lord I think yeah. refuses oh, that right and she refuses to be like no that's not actually mm-hmm. the way we go about changing reality mm-hmm. right that we need to like name reality mm-hmm. in right. order to change right. reality and so we get, like, really quickly, page yeah. 32, like, this beautiful moment um, where she says, I am a reflection of my mother's secret poetry as well as of her hidden angers. And she's been talking about this kind of um, Creole um, language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, that sentence also sums up this kind of orientation to the world that her mother has set up for her, her up for. Mm-hmm. Um, that it is both a position mm-hmm. that allows her to language because it's necessary to have this language for it but also the hidden anger is like that's just right the simmering Mm -hmm. and 
what page was that you were just reading from? Yeah, so that's, I thought this was right. That's in that section that's titled How I Became a Poet. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. it's all about, yeah. you know, the, the everything that you said, the language, but also the anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many of our poems that are about that, right? Like mm. um, what what we pass to our children in anger. But, but she's got the essay too, The Uses of Anger, mm-hmm. that is about how anger is productive and, and, it, and it is useful. It can be useful if it's, employed in the right way so I mean I think you could read this book and be really kind of um, horrified in some ways at the the relationship between her and her mother um, and but if you see it from her point of view she's basically saying I'm using everything that's available to me from my mother in you know whatever it is that the the tender moments the 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 moments of anger, the moments of pain, mm-hmm. and all of it, right? Mm-hmm. Just like when she's doing the mortar and pestle, like you put yeah. it all together mm-hmm. and you grind it up mm-hmm. and then you put the meat in it. And you know, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of like a really good mm-hmm. metaphor for what she's doing. Yeah. And I think, I think this is, you were talking about, right? She has this empathy for people, then I think she has this empathy for her mom, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I feel like not that I condone you know, physical violence against children, but I feel like I also understand why she was doing that, right? Like, mm-hmm. she was doing that in a way to, like, you have to behave yourself in these different ways, mm-hmm. because otherwise the consequences, right, of right. being a young black woman, mm-hmm. of being a black person mm-hmm. is deadly, mm-hmm. right? Literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think Tanasi Coates talked about this in his book mm-hmm. about how um, fear turns into violence, right? Like, yeah. how parents, their fear for their children makes them mm-hmm. hit them, and there's that scene where he's talking, his father's mm-hmm. talking to his mother, and he says, either I can beat him or the cops will, yep, right. you know? Yep. And so, I mean, that sort of animates that, that yeah. violence against yeah. children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so slight change, but I did want to talk about that passage where I'm like, hey, finally a book where I use, you know, Do we it. can talk about educational yes. studies, yay! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like, so assign my students, um, I think it's section three, I guess, 21. So this is when she first, um, A, first learns how to read, right? Because mm-hmm. there's that great scene in the library where she's, like, totally having a fit, and her mom's like, oh, my God, right? <laughs> mortified. And then, like, the librarian's like, hey, you want to hear a story? And she, like, totally gets into that and says that she wants to read, and her mom's like, yes. <laughs> um, but then she goes to school, and I use this, you know, sort of her experience first going to school where, you know, the teacher's kind of asking her to write with crayon and she's like you we know that you don't write with crayon right and I think it's just like really great description of you know I talk a lot about sort of this notion of thinking about how students um, maybe have a different home culture and when they come to school there's a whole school culture that isn't always made clear to them right that there's sort of this whole way in which you do school mm-hmm. and for you know a lot of white middle class kids it's like home, home culture and school culture are kind of the same so if you come from non-white non-middle class families right that there might be sort of this disjuncture between home culture and school culture and I think that passive like that mm-hmm. description does such a beautiful way of like describing this right so she's like you know, and this is on 24, and she says that they were given sort of these thick black crayons. Now, you don't grow up black, fat, nearly blind, and ambidextrous in a West Indian household, particularly my parents' household, and survive without being or becoming fairly rigid, fairly fast. And having been roundly spanked on several occasions for having made that mistake home, home I knew quite well that crayons were not what you wrote in. <laughs> and music books were definitely not what you wrote in. <laughs> right? So she, like, you know, so she does this and she gets into trouble. But also it's this example of, like, she knew how to write our letters. Right. Like, she needed to sit there with her crayon and trace the letters. But mm-hmm. her teacher made no no effort to like even get to know her right and get to know what her capabilities are right mm-hmm. so she like actually gets into trouble 
for knowing more than like the teacher expected her to know. Uh, but also right in this kind of this great moment of like talk a lot about like cultural capital. So like the next page where she's talking about, you know, the one thing, there was one thing my sisters had warned me about school in great detail. You must never talk in school unless you raised your hand. <laughs> and so I also love this moment of like, you know, how do we learn how to do school? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like, you know, I only use like five pages, but it's like so packed with like all these things I feel like I want my <laughs> students to know about what education can do, but also what schools don't do, right? right. Like mm -hmm. this is what schools don't do is like recognize your difference. What schools don't do is recognize right. your talent. Mm -hmm. And it's because you're a little black kid and like people don't expect that from you, right? So. And you know what? Like that section, as you talk about it in that way, that is her whole book, right? Mm -hmm. It is the whole biomythography, which is basically going into these different spaces and trying to learn the language of these spaces and the rules and figuring out whether that's her home by whether those rules make sense to her and she's willing to like um, abide by them, yeah. right? So whether it's in the factory where mm -hmm. she works and having to figure out like how to right. do the work in the right way and like, you know, yeah. with the right timing. and um, Like that moment where someone says, hey, stop doing it so fast, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, right. that makes us all look bad. Right. Um, or what else was I thinking of? Or like going to Mexico and like, having to figure, right, like when she is dating, what's her name? Uh, Eudora. Eudora. Um, and it takes her a while, but she finally figures out that the other women don't like Eudora very much, mm. right? And like, kind of like entering these situations and then understanding their larger mm -hmm. uh, kind of meaning or structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like, I love that that, you know, I hadn't thought about how each section is probably kind of like this microcosm of the same processes that she's mm -hmm. working through. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And so and fashion, like, I wanted to talk about fashion really quickly. <laughs> because like, one thing that really struck me is like, how much, especially once she gets into the kind of the New York City scene mm -hmm. of, Black women, lesbian women, sometimes but very rarely black lesbian women. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, how much she talks about the way fashion is the way everybody learns to understand who is who and where they belong, mm -hmm. um, and trying to like wear the right things. Mm. The Every Bermuda shorts, man. Oh my god! <laughs> I was trying to even imagine what that even like looked like. I was like, and really? People, I know. I know. In the fifties, everyone's wearing Bermuda shorts and knee socks. <laughs> they didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it got to the point where I was like, seriously, Audrey, you're going to tell us about the clothes again? <laughs> it's so important, right? It's, yeah, yeah. Um, so on page two forty-two. She has this just lovely kind of like longer section. It starts on page 241. Um, and we don't have to read the whole thing. But so on page 241 it starts and she's like, there were whipcord summer suits with stretch shiny shirt colors open at the neck, white gabardine slacks. And I'm like, I don't even know what gabardine no. is. There were weak colored cotton jeans, the fashion favorite that summer with knife edge creases. And honestly, it felt to me like I was kind of in some zoot suit world, right? How fashion is political statements right. too. Right. Positioning them here. It also made it seem so glamorous to me too. I was like, oh, oh I wish I was in 1950s New York <laughs> with all these lovely women. <laughs> they do sound pretty awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah. do sound pretty awesome. I mean, that sort of goes back to something you were, I think you were saying earlier, but about what kind of environment this must have been, you know, mm -hmm. like late 1940s through the 1950s yeah. and how things are changing and how, um, I mean, the 50s gets a bad rap a lot of the time about like being a kind of boring decade. She that line. Yeah. Doesn't she about, uh, 
page 220, sorry, I marked this. No, no, do it. She says, rather than the idyllic picture created by false nostalgia, the 50s were really straight white America's cooling off period of let's pretend we're happy and that this is the best of all possible worlds and we'll blow those nasty connies to hell if they dare to say say otherwise. Right, right. So, but then you have them sort of like this this subculture or this group of outcasts in a way that are making this whole new world and not paying any attention to that that kind of false romanticized world, you know. Um, And I just, yeah... I just love the idea of like they're squatters or they're like, mm-hmm. you know, they're, you know, just like stealing, you know, shoplifting or whatever they have to do to yeah. survive, mm-hmm. um, but to survive their way, right? To like yeah. to live the way that they want to live, right? Mm-hmm. And they're willing to do just about anything. And she's, of, of all of them, she's like the, the biggest person who will do that, you know? She'll do whatever it takes to do what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. And I never, you know, I never read her as being selfish. Not at all in this book. Mm. I just read her as being, like, willful to f- to go towards what is is sort of speaking to her mm. at any given moment, and she usually does that, right? And I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything wrong with that. Mm. I mean, I'm cool with it. <laughs> yeah, and I wouldn't have said selfish at all. But I was wondering, like, I think thinking about these spaces, I think the one thing I did want us to get to, because I feel like the buzzword, right? Everybody's talking about intersectionality, and so I wanted to kind of think about how. How does she talk about that, right? Like, how does she talk about, or what struck you perhaps about, you know, how is she talking about being black, being a woman, being a lesbian, being, mm-hmm. you know, working class most of her life, right? And maybe not uh, towards the end, I'm not sure. Um, and being, you know, a socialist, a communist, I'm not sure right, how she would describe herself. But, and I think the one sort of paragraph that I always go back to in thinking about this in 226, and she says, being women together was not enough, we were different. Being gay girls together was not enough. We were different. Being black together was not enough. We were different. Being black women together was not enough. We were different. Being black dykes together was not enough. We were different. And like a couple paragraphs down. It was a while before we came to realize that our place was that very house of difference rather than the security of any one particular difference. And often we were cowards in our learning. It was years before we learned to use that strength that daily surviving can bring. Years before we learned that fear does not have to incapacitate, that we could appreciate each other on terms not necessarily our own. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've, I, I'm I, sort of curious about how people... No, I think, yeah. I mean, when I actually would point to a, a section just slightly earlier than that where I was writing, you know, intersectionality in the margins and everything, and, and it's where um, she's talking about she and Felicia being mm-hmm. two of the only black yep. women in the group and how Muriel was um, insisting that they were all sort of equally oppressed, right? And right. she even says, you know, we're all niggers, you know, basically. And um, and so yeah. she's she doesn't, um, I don't think she comes out explicitly and says this to Muriel, but she's writing about it and on 204. Mm-hmm. I think she says, between Muriel and me then, there was one way uh, in which I would always be separate. And it was going to be my own secret knowledge, even if it was going to be my own secret pain. I was black and she was not. And that was a difference between us that had nothing to do with better or worse or the outside world's craziness. Over time, I came to realize that it uh, colored our perceptions and made a difference in the ways I saw pieces of the world we shared. And I was going to have to deal with that difference outside of our relationship. And I think there, what she's, you know, I mean, she's saying like, there's a difference in the way that we see the world and and that's going to come into play in our relationship. But I think she's also saying, you know, blackness plus being a lesbian plus being a woman 
is different than you know being a woman plus being a lesbian like and in it i always think of of audrey lord when i think of intersectionality because of the way in you know sister outsider and other writings where she would always sort of line up list those different subject positions right mm-hmm. as part of her identity i'm black lesbian warrior poet you mm-hmm. know and she would have sometimes it would be different lists mm-hmm. but she always thought about how those things fit together to um put you in a different position or put you in a different way of looking at life or in a different way of the world responding to who you are mm-hmm. so I think I'm a, I'm going right along with what you're saying. No, no, but I just feel like I guess how do we not then think about it? Just like this list of identities that we add together, right? Like I, I don't, you know what I mean? Because I feel like the danger is then that we think of intersectionality as like I'm black and I'm you know woman and like I don't know, right? Well, like is it? Just, is, I feel like she gets at it in a different way, and I don't know that I can necessarily take apart what that means other than just listing it. Does that make sense, right? Because I think a lot of the times we're like, oh, when we think about intersectionality, it just means that I'm going to list all of my identities and I have now taken care of talking about intersectionality. Well, that's what I, th- I think, yes, I there's that danger. Yeah. And I don't think that's what she's doing. Right. But I think that's why I like that, that paragraph that I pointed to. I mean, she's basically saying, you're in a different position than I am because I have a different sort of... Um, conglomeration of, mm-hmm. of of these of 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 subject positions that are part of my identity and so you can't say we're equally oppressed i mean that was but, what muriel was saying is like we're equally oppressed okay this is the problem too that she can't even talk about it with muriel right that it's a right. silence between them right okay. that's true so that i feel like intersectionality in some ways is the voicing of, of that. these differences in um mm-hmm. i mean it sounds really productive by the time we get to page 226, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That there's a recognition of differences, but also they're in the same house, mm-hmm. right? That metaphor suggests that mm. they've figured out ways to see each other, right? Um, whereas Muriel, and she, like, that harkens back to the way her mother dealt with the difficulties of racism or sexuality, right? right? Just don't talk about it. Hmm. Um, and so there's that other moment with Muriel. I'm sorry, I'm getting off intersectionality slightly nope. to talk about Muriel, but Muriel's a fascinating relationship. And I kept on, I tried to figure out like who it might be, which poet this would be. Oh. And I was not successful. You didn't come up with it. No. <laughs> um, but um, it, there's that moment where they are listing, it's New Year's, I think, and they're listing kind of like what they've accomplished or like, you know, like, something they're happy Oh, yeah, about, when she right? gives her the list? Is mm-hmm. that what you're talking yeah. about? And her, and her list is like, you know, like, I've been... Like, uh, goes to, uh, applied to college or whatever. Right. She had this list this of accomplishments. Audie got a new job, started <laughs> therapy, sent out some poems, going back to school. Me, nothing. Yes. Right. And, like, so it's not just that Audrey is unwilling to talk to Muriel about her life. It's that Muriel is unwilling to talk about her pains too like mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. this is really well yeah i mean doesn't yeah <laughs> isn't muriel like often just like sitting in the room in the dark crying and stuff yeah. like that like yeah. um unable to share the the pain and i mean she's going through a lot of sort of emotional mental, mental health, health issues, issues mm-hmm. right but mm-hmm. she's not able to talk about it which actually maybe goes back to like the very thing one of the things we started by right like what's amazing about Audrey Lord is that she's able to like at least try and name these things, right? right? And try and name all these like difficult 
emotions, difficult experiences, and like what it means to be sort of, you know, black and gay and woman and like right. all of these things. So maybe right. like that is what's different about her, right? Is that she attempts to do that at least. Right. Um, but I guess, Crystal, I wanted to kind of go back to your question about like reading this in a history class, right? And like why it seemed illegible Inter- it, it, at the beginning, at least, right? And sort of was thinking about you know, how do we kind of think about this as what is this, right? Like, what is this a history? Is this a history of... It's a like, biomethography. Right, what does that mean? Like, what do people... I don't know. I'm just, like, what do people think that I have a meant? guess. Yeah. I have a guess. Or I have a theory. Okay. Well, I think, you know, the the biography part of it is, is sort of there, right? I mean, it's a story about her life. Okay. But the mythology part of it has to do with all these women, and how she has wow. met all these women and how they've had an impact on her life. And I think of the way that, um, you know, in, in myths, um, the characters of myth become larger than mm. human beings. They're, okay. they're not human beings, they become like gods or they become like these sort of larger sort of um, uh, supernatural beings in kind of sacred stories, right? And um, I think that's what this is. I mean, you've got that character at or the the woman Afro Kitty yeah. at the very yeah. end, but you've also got a woman, a, a character like Jenny at the very beginning, mm-hmm. um, who become more than what they are within yeah. the story of her life. Right? They become like this pantheon of almost gods. Even uh, doesn't matter if they're good or if they're bad. They have this impact on her life that's much more than just I met this person one time. I mean, Eudora. Um, they're just like these huge, huge. Huh. So I mean, so that's the way I'm thinking okay. about the mythology part of it. And you okay. put those two things together, you get a biography that's really a, a myth, right? Yeah, it's really mm-hmm. mythology because it, it's populated by her. I mean, her mother. I mean, okay. there are all these giant figures that are laying down like the moral compass and the mm. artistic, you know, ideas. And I mean, everything's being inspired by these women in her life. Mm. Did you? I don't know if you were. Yeah, I think another piece of. So as I mentioned earlier, thinking about the language and and how it's so poetic, but also thinking about this as a, you know, as um as a primary source, right? And what it right, means right. that, you know, Audre Lorde is writing this story about her growing up years as a woman in her mid forties, mm-hmm. right? And how um, how much of this is coming from a memory, and how much of it is being recreated mm. and thinking about um, what we can and cannot take from this right um, mm. both of our creation of her life story and then also thinking about the other worlds that she's creating right so thinking about it as a as a historical artifact um, and then also you know teaching teaching this where students are not used to, you know, hearing the authentic and powerful voice of a black woman, right? Mm-hmm. And and taking that voice on its own, right? Mm-hmm. It's also kind of a challenge for students to... Um, what do you mean on its own? Like without having it corroborated? Or no, like no. Oh, reading this as, as a credible way to understand or think about a black woman's historical experience. Huh. Right, and it's not, you know, and this as a primary source in and of itself, right? And even though we, you know, we we can we can question it and critique it, but this being a credible mm-hmm. primary source, mm-hmm. right? Them being able to write a paper and grapple, you know, with mm-hmm. Audre Lorde's, you know, bio mythography. What does that mean mm-hmm. in a history classroom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that a source that they can actually 
use and count on. Like, is it a credible source? Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Is it? (laughs) What what does that mean? Sorry, as a literary person. Yeah. Uh, Because, so, thinking about writing a historical paper and thinking about traditional primary sources being newspaper articles, Mm -hmm. being... um, um, like historical documents. Historical documents, meeting minutes, like things mm. that are created mm. basically by white people. Mm. Mm. Right? And mm. so then thinking about this source, you know, as a way, again, to understand an experience that they may have not even encountered. Mm. Right? And so how does that how does that work? Something that wouldn't be recorded in this so-called right. official right. documentation. Right, right. right. Yeah. Like who gets to write those official exactly. documents right. and who right. gets to. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. And so, yes, you can read this as a piece of literature. Yeah. But can you read this as a piece of historical fact? Can we have, and then even thinking about the definition of historical fact, right? Mm. That is created. Um, but how does this work as a piece of history? Mm. This is super fascinating to me. Like, I feel like we need <laughs> a whole episode. We I might need a whole other episode because we are coming to the end. Of where we're going. So I don't know if there was like any other like last quote people wanted to read or anything like that. Um, the only last, yeah. um, I don't want to read anything. I just want to pose a question, especially to people who have been listening to our podcast. Um, and especially since this uh, this piece is coming after we've read Electric Arches by mm. Eve Ewing. And so maybe something that readers or listeners can think about are whether connections that they see perhaps between Audre Lorde's kind of narration of black girlhood and, and Eve Ewing's kind mm. of understanding of black girlhood. And, and maybe do they see any ways they are connected, not connected? could be something that people think about we don't have to discuss but that's what i've been thinking about yeah and maybe we could come back to that Mm -hmm. depending on what else we read Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah like hit us up on facebook we're on facebook let us know what you think but Mm -hmm. we'll kind of go around and kind of maybe see what else we're reading is that cool okay um so i can start and i just started reading this book called lucky boy by Shanti Sekaran, which explores the story of two women, an Indian American woman and a Mexican undocumented woman. And I like it so far, and I think it has something to do with, I think the undocumented woman has a a boy or baby that the Indian American woman ends up fostering. Um, So I'm kind of intrigued by the potential exploration of thinking about both the fault lines and potential solidarity across lines of citizenship status and class and, you know, sort of life differences and identity. Um, so I am, well, I just finished reading Beloved by Toni Morrison um, over again. Um, the last time I read it was a long time ago in college, and like with Sammy, I actually didn't really remember anything except that I had found it a very powerful read at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been interesting to read it. My son's reading it for his high school English class. And to um, both like have my own read of it, and it's a really just such a powerful and beautifully written book things struck me this, like now, that I don't know if they would have struck me back then, like um, speaking of solidarity, like thinking about the section around the Cherokee, right? And um, this whole section that Morrison has about um, Cherokee autonomy and survivance, um, and, uh, you know, kind of paired and juxtaposed and compared then to um, African-American survivance and slavery. Um, that, yeah, I found really compelling. Um, but then also to watch my son, you know, get certain kinds of prompts from from his class, mm-hmm. um, which of course, like, uh, 
are maybe the least interesting I think of as a literary <laughs> but like that are, are you know useful boarding questions right, right? like mm -hmm. so by which I mean like plain boarding right like mm -hmm. the start of a conversation mm -hmm. how does Morrison use color mm -hmm. you know which does matter baby sugs mm -hmm. you know like she's going through to, the colors yeah yeah um, or like the whole Christian illusions uh, that fill the book um, so he got to answer a question about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and how Morrison uses that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been really fun and interesting and hard, but good. Um, I'm actually looking forward to reading um, a new book that is going to be in conjunction with the trip I have to London in June. Um, I'm reading, I'm going to start reading London is the Place for Me, Black Britain, Citizenship and the Politics of Race in the uh, post-World War II period. And that's in an effort to really understand um, kind of the history of um, black folks in, in London as I gear up to think about doing some research at the Black Cultural Archives. Um, yeah. In, in London, so cool. in so that. Cool. Yeah, looking forward to that. Awesome. Um, I'm actually reading, uh, so I'm teaching right now a, um, a first year, second level English course that's themed, it's called Sports and Social Justice. Mm. And um, so I've been thinking a lot about sports lately. And so this uh, Michael Bennett's new book with Dave Zirin just came out. It's called Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. <laughs> and it's actually, it's it's really, really, really good. Um, and he's really sort of thinking through a lot of things having to do with sports and beyond sports. Like activism, identity, you know, all kinds of stuff. And talking about his, his work, his activism work with his foundation and things like that. And I'm really, really impressed by it. Um, I... I I don't know what I was expecting when it's, I don't know if it might be one of the first books I've read by, you know, written, authored by a sports figure, but um, I, I, I'm really impressed by it, yeah. So is it like a biography or a set of essays? It, it's, it's, well, I mean, it, it's a, I would say it's a, a book of sort of essays. I mean, they're chapters, but they're, it's about certain issues in contemporary issues really so part of it he talks about his life you know he talks about um, growing up and his uh, his younger brother is also a football player uh, Martellus Bennett um, and they're both really really good um, they both played at Texas A&M but you know for example he talks about his experience of, as a football player at Texas A&M and how he realized that um, his coaches did not want did not want him to challenge himself intellectually like they would get angry with him when he would take courses that were challenging they wanted him to take courses that were easy so he would never put his his uh, eligibility you know into question um and how he had to really push you know the whole idea of like uh, a football player who's also an intellectual and thinks through things and is thoughtful doesn't necessarily go together so there's a lot of sort of thinking and talking about that um, he talks a lot about you know Black Lives Matter he talks a lot about police violence he talks about all this stuff his his support of Colin Kaepernick um, and it's not just that it's really thoughtful stuff so I would definitely recommend it especially to anyone who's interested in sports but it goes much further than sports so yeah. All right. Thanks, all. And so we're going to take sort of a short break for a couple of months just to finish up our terms, do some traveling, things like that. So we'll probably be back in July and we will be reading Juno Diaz's set of short stories, Drown. So we'll see you all then. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye. This episode of The Drip was recorded live at Lake Coffee House on Lake Street in beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our theme music is by KG House and 1234. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Podbean, or any of the other places where podcasts live. Be sure to rate us, and also visit our Facebook where you can leave a comment, ask a question, 
to find out what we're up to. We'll see you back here again in July when we'll be discussing Juno Diaz's Drown in crystal clear stereo sound. Until then, and if the hippies and the yippies, and if the hippies and the yippies, And if the hippies and the yippies...